Hey everyone, this is David Green. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media and your host here on Left, Right and Center. This week, as many of us know, a massive earthquake hit Turkey and Syria. More than 20,000 people are confirmed dead at this point and tens of thousands have been injured. This was a 7.8 quake, which is considered major and it was particularly deadly due to the timing. It was early in the morning when a lot of people were sleeping. Another big factor was just the lack of sturdiness of so many buildings in this region not built to withstand something like this. This is the strongest quake to hit this region in over a century. This is also a region, of course, that has been torn apart by war. In rebel-controlled areas of northern Syria, hospitals were badly damaged, and so millions of people already displaced by the war and neglected by the Assad regime are suffering with little or no way to get help. So what can the world do here? The Syrian regime's relationship with countries like the United States, frozen. So what is the moral responsibility and what risks should NGOs be taking to try and reach people to make sure that their human rights are being respected in this horrible moment and to make sure their government is helping them. Well, to talk about that, we have Kemal Karishi, a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. He's also author of the book Turkey and the West, Fault Lines in a Troubled Alliance, also a retired professor who has worked on refugee-related issues since the 1980s. Um, Kemal, thank you for taking some time to talk us through this crisis. Thank you. I know you're in touch with uh, a lot of people in, in the region hit by the earthquake. Um, just tell us what is standing out to you in, in terms of of the suffering that we're seeing here. I think, as you pointed out, this is a very unusual earthquake. I heard somewhat, somebody saying that it has provoked a biblical scene, I would say more of an apocalyptic uh, paysage that reveals itself in its af uh, aftermath. I just to give you some idea. I, I on social media I saw a, a professor of geophysics saying that the Anatolian Peninsula has moved about three meters to the southwest of uh, of the country, and the country is crisscrossed by three major fault lines, one bearing the weight of the Arabian Peninsula, the other one, the Euro-Asian mess, and then there is the smaller Anatolian fault line, and the three of them kind of mount stress on each other. And as you pointed out, it was back in the 1930s that to the north of where the earthquakes took place, a major earthquake of Erzincan had uh, occurred. And I suspect this is why people are referring to this century uh, point of reference. But it wasn't, it wasn't, it was in the 1500s that the last major earthquake had taken place in the area where uh, these two earthquakes occurred. So you can imagine the amount of stress that would have built on this uh, particular fault fault line. Yeah, I mean, it's just a it's a, a, an historic catastrophe. Um, I I know you you had sent us some notes that you were getting from from the region, and, and one that stood out to mm -hmm. me was was more than two hundred thousand people possibly stuck under the rubble. Uh, that, that that's horrific. The figure I saw was two hundred twenty four 
thousand, and only nine thousand of them have been saved. And it's not very clear that they've been saved for good, because remaining under rubble for such a long time does build a stress on uh, on one's health health as well. There were good news after seventy two hours. There were people and small kids w- that were being retrieved, but. Time will tell whether they will be able to physically recover, let alone psychologically. And then one other thing that really uh, struck me is out of four million buildings, 7,000 of them are completely damaged and the calculation is, is not complete yet. And amongst these are also runways that should have not been built where they were. they are and that there's been a lot of uh, opposition from experts, especially uh, engineers and architects objecting to it. But the government had pushed aside uh, such criticism and at times even calling them uh, terrorists. And then there are roads also that have literally crumbled. And this also explains why some of the rescue teams took a while to get to where they were most uh, most uh, need needed. And, and we should say, I mean, to, to just help people understand this part of the world, you know, beyond this just staggering human cost and, and death toll. I mean, we're talking about places like Aleppo in Syria that, that we heard so much mm-hmm. about during the war that was, you know, historic, beautiful, so destroyed by the civil war. And then on the Turkish side, I mean, cities I, I've been to recently with, with my wife, Hatay, Gaziantep, beautiful parts of Turkey that you know, have also played a role in in the war because so many refugees have, have come over into Turkey and, and resettled. I mean, just, you know, I, I know there's research about how conflict often forces people into places that make it them more vulnerable to a disaster like this. And I, I just, I suppose that's what we're seeing here. You're absolutely right. Uh, the word that I would use is heartbreaking. You made references to Hatay, I see in the media, uh, the name of Hatay comes up as if it is a city, but it actually is the part of Turkey that sort of sticks into Syria. And there are two major cities there. One is Iskenderun, also known as Alexandria. And then there is Antioch, Antakya. And Antioch was an absolute gem in terms of its historic, architectural, and also uh, ethnic diversity. And uh, in one of the uh, tweets I saw that that a very ancient uh, synagogue had collapsed for good. And uh, there was a video recording of people retrieving these ancient Torah scrolls. Now, that's just symbolic. There is so much more to, to that damage when you go into its uh, de- uh, details. A, a, a very, very unique, special part of Turkey that maintained that cultural diversity and uh, ri- uh, richness. And then as you move along towards, uh, towards Gaziantep, these are uh, agriculturally and industrially quite developed uh, er- areas. I notice in the media sometimes people say that this is the most underdeveloped area of uh, Turkey. It's not true. What that means is that 
a lot of businesses, factories have collapsed. And this is also a region, as you pointed out, where there are large numbers of refugees. You know, Turkey is currently holding 3.6 million Syrian refugees and a good more than one and a half to two million of them are living in that uh, area. Many of them are having to work, unfortunately, under informal and very precarious conditions. And together with the local people, their livelihood is gone, Hmm. not to mention all that physical destruction and the pain that comes to it. So there's a long uphill battle to be given as as, uh, the the country recovers from the rescue efforts and then the uh, recovery recovery process. Well, let me ask you about who can reach a lot of these people to help and who should be reaching them to help. I want to start in northwestern Syria. Um, You know, they're rebel-held areas that that obviously you could imagine someone like Bashar al-Assad, that's not going to be his highest priority to to help them. Um, what help, if any, are they getting from the Syrian regime? And is it possible for the United States, for NGOs to, to get into these regions to help people? Or or, or is it, it really a, a hopeless situation? Yeah, I'm, I'm, very, I'm glad you brought that up because I reflected mostly on the Turkish side of uh, the border. It's an area that I geographically I'm familiar with, and also I have lots of people, including former students that are out in in the field. But Northwest Syria has been uh, impacted, I would say, even more than the Turkish side, because as you pointed out, it's been in a state of conflict for the last 12, 12 years. And during the worst parts of that conflict, a lot of what little infrastructure was there was wrecked by often uh, Russian aerial bombing, artillery fire from the uh, uh, government, uh, government uh, forces. And uh, now that earthquake brings down whatever is, was left, uh, left behind. And there is a heroic group of people that I'm sure you and your listeners are familiar with called the White Helmets. And uh, I have seen lots of videos of them literally begging for international support and desperately needed uh, needed emergency equipment, etc. Et but the problem is, uh, is that uh, uh, the United Nations periodically renews a resolution, Security Council resolution, that at one point enabled what they call cross-border humanitarian assistance through four border gates, one in Iraq, one in Jordan, and two on the Turkish side. But in the last two years, uh, Russian vetoing and the Russian, let's call it, dipl- uh, diplomacy has reduced this to only one uh, one gate, not far from the Hatay, uh, Hatay region. What, why? That, what was Russia's interest in limiting the the places where humanitarian aid could get in? Because it sounds like that could be a that could make this a, a much more awful situation here. I should have also added that uh, United Nations resolutions also refer to what they call cross-line humanitarian assistance uh, provision. And that is 
the line that is referred to is the line between the parts of Syria that is controlled by the regime and then the area to which you just uh, referred to. And Russia being an ally of Assad and the country that has enabled him to remain in, in power keeps demanding measures that would reinstate uh, the regime's full sovereignty over the uh, the rest of the country. So one way in which to remind the international community about it is to make the adoption of this resolution or the renewal of this resolution as difficult as, as possible. So access to international assistance takes place for the region we're talking about only through that particular gate. And I looked up the reports. It's OCHA, the United Nations Humanitarian Assistance Organization that oversees this process. And in 2022, there was just over 7,500 trucks that ferried assistance to 2.7 million people out of a population of roughly four and a half million in the region that we're uh, we're talking about. I'm just amazed because it sounds like this this is the kind of reality that we face in in the world yes, today. Yeah. I mean, in in another in another imaginary time, maybe President Biden could have gotten on the phone with Vladimir Putin and come to some agreement to open up some of these corridors to help people. But obviously, with Ukraine and and sort of this moment, that's unlikely to happen. No. And so you have hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people who could suffer more because of because of global politics. Absolutely. And that's why people keep referring that we have moved into another Cold War era, suggesting that that kind of interaction, that kind of uh, diplomatic relationship doesn't exist uh, any uh, anymore. And the war in Ukraine obviously has aggravated that particular situation. And ordinary people, you know, it makes my heart bleed. Uh, Mothers and fathers are having to see their kids, babies perish. It's as terrible as that. So what what should the United States government, what should Americans, how should we think about our moral responsibility here, given the obstacles that could could prevent us from from being able to do that much? How, how should we be seeing these images and taking all this in? You know, under ideal circumstances, one would have expected the conflict to Syria to have been resolved after all these years. But Syria is not the only conflict in the world that has become protracted. Uh, You have the situation in Burma, you have the situation in Congo. The list is a very long one. Unfortunately, we are living in a period where the international community has lost its capacity and its instruments to bring about resolution of such conflicts. And honestly, on one side, the United States has a lot that it could do, but on the other side, uh, its it, it, its resources are limited as as well. 
Kemal Karishi is a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. Uh, his book is Turkey and the West, Fault Lines in a Troubled Alliance. And uh, he's been working on refugee-related issues um, since the 80s. Uh, thank you so much for, for helping us understand um, what is happening in, in this part of the world. And uh, uh, we're just thinking about, you know, all the people suffering there. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRC KCRW. We're back again with more Left, Right, and Center, and we have our regular panel here, Moa Lathy and Sarah Isger. Moa was communications director at the DNC. Sarah was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. Um, let me just ask you both, as we're listening to Kamal there, uh, talking about that there are things that countries like the United States might be able to do to help in a catastrophe like this. Um, it is hard because of the realities, especially in northern Syria, but... Uh, I mean, should should the U.S. government, should U.S. NGOs be feeling a, a weight of responsibility to, to get there and, and help? Um, I mean, it, you know, what can we do? So I'm not going to answer your question at all, but instead point out the importance of humility for all of us, but on all issues. You know, you see people, I'm going to, you know, mock the very online, the very Twitter folks here for a second. But, you know, everyone's an expert on what to do about a Chinese surveillance balloon flying over the United States. And the next week, they're an expert on what to do um, when a tragedy of this magnitude strikes another country. And what I found most interesting about the conversation was noting that because of what we are doing in the conflict with Ukraine, that is affecting aid efforts in Turkey now. I'm not saying that that's the wrong thing to do. But all of these things interact. Governing is hard. Prioritization is hard. When you talk about money, that's money not going to something else or sending tanks to Ukraine. Um, and so having more humility when something like this happens rather than simply saying we must or we must not do X in Turkey or Syria, bear in mind all of these things have ripple effects, as he was pointing out, which I thought was such a, a brilliant way to talk about that. You're saying that, that people should not just jump onto any platform they have and, and tell the U.S. government, how dare you <laughs> not be saving all of these lives right now? That if you're policymakers, if you're decision makers, there's, there's just a lot of deep nuance thinking about priority, about what's possible, about what can be done that's going on. And to, to make space for that? I mean, is that... Yeah, and I think particularly... What when there's people on both sides of how much aid we should be giving to Ukraine and it's like it's in a vacuum. It's like no, that decision affects nothing else. And it absolutely, of course, as he was saying, affects the ability to help people in Turkey right now. By and large, I think that probably what we've done in Ukraine is worth the cost but I feel like it's the same people who are like, we should be doing everything in Ukraine. And also, why can't Russia, you know, do this in Turkey? And it's like, aha, see, these two are connected. And so when you can't jump on, you know, up and down on both issues without realizing they're connected. Mo, where's your thinking here? Um, I am going to tell the U.S. government that it must help here. I will uh, uh, jump in and say that. And for a couple of reasons. 
first, I'm mean, just, it's the right thing to do. I mean, this is a humanitarian crisis of epic proportion. We do uh, play a special role in the world. And for the United States government and for our NGOs, right, all the, all the humanitarian rescue organizations out there, um, this is why they exist, is to help out in these types of crises. Beside the humanitarian mandate here, there is also a geopolitical and strategic reason. Uh, Turkey is an ally. They're a NATO ally. They are probably the most awkward of our allies yeah. in NATO. And they were, one, the government, Turkish government, woefully underprepared for this. And because of everything that we've just heard about sort of the connection between what's happening in Ukraine, this is the type of thing that Vladimir Putin could easily use to leverage the Turkish government. And so to be able to go and do the right thing and help save lives and help rebuild communities that are devastated right now, while also reminding the Turkish people who their friends are and the role that the United States plays there, um, I think is important from a geopolitical perspective as well. I lean, I care more about the humanitarian right now, but for those who are sitting around saying, why should we get involved in this earthquake that happened halfway across the world? There's a reason why for the United States, for us to maintain uh, and, and protect against what Putin might try to do in the area. Yeah, I, I, I think about this like just at a, at a deep emotional level. Like I, I, yeah. I want to believe that my government and my country can, can help when somewhere in the world is, is suffering like this. And so I, I think about what you said, Sarah, and I, I, I agree. It's not like there's humility in that. It's not like I'm going to jump on and, and start screaming and yelling and saying that, you know, why isn't the U.S. government acting more immediately because they're letting people die? Um, but I do want to tell the world that I believe that I slash we must be able to help somehow when we see this level of of suffering. Um, I know we have a lot more to talk about, but, um, you know, I'm sure sadly we'll be following what happens in Syria and Turkey for a good while because this recovery is going to be massive and long lasting. Uh I do want to turn to uh, President Biden's State of the Union address this week, and it was it was an interesting speech. It's always you know hard to tell how impactful it is and and how many Americans are actually plugged in and how much of it is just sort of an inside Washington story. But you know Biden sounded at times presidential, kind of above the the political fray. We didn't hear the the finger pointing at. MAGA Republicans, a term that he used in, in some recent speeches, but he got pretty feisty in the House chamber at times. I mean, he went after Republicans, accusing them of trying to cut Social Security and Medicare. Somewhat predictably, we heard more vocal members of the GOP responding with boos and calling him a liar. And Biden seemed to be taking on stride. And, you know, he's gearing up for this new Congress, another possible term. You know, I felt that we were seeing him setting the tone for his campaign um, that that will be upcoming and trying to show that he is a a viable incumbent uh, when he hits the campaign trail. But um, Mo, what were your what were your impressions? Um, I thought it was a great speech. Actually, I you know I I tend not to think 
the stakes are usually pretty low for State of the Union addresses. You know, you what you know, the president gets up there, reads off a laundry list of policy proposals. Maybe they frame it around some big narrative. They, you know, Republicans push back on those policy proposals. You get the polling usually shows a bump that lasts about 16 seconds. And then we kind of go back about our normal daily political lives. But this president like came in and actually used it, I think, to his benefit. I think he used this as an opportunity to do a couple of things. Number one, um, polling was showing that people do not believe Joe Biden is accomplishing anything. So he took that head on. He went in there and said, let me show you where, what we have done. Let me show you all of our accomplishments. Let me talk to you about why things are better today than they were two years ago. But then he did the second important thing, which is to acknowledge that not everybody feels that way, that, that people are still struggling. They still think that the direction of the country is headed in the wrong direction. And so he did the pivot that is so important. He did the, and here's what's next. He did the, you know, we, we've, we've come a long way, but not everyone is where they need to be. So here's how we're going to expand this. Here's how we're going to finish the job. How many times did we hear that phrase? And then the third thing he did, which was very important in this first speech during an era of divided government, he drew a contrast with the other side. And the other side played right into the contrast that he wanted to draw. He did take them on on some policy issues, but wrapped around, he spent more time talking about where they could work together and then let them respond. When he highlighted some of the differences, he let them respond in a way that I think only helps him. And then when you look at the Republican response afterwards, it was completely on a different playing field. He focused on the economy. He focused on middle-class families. The Republican response focused on a war on wokeism. From Sarah Huckabee so, Sanders. From Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And so the whole night, I think, ended up playing to all of Biden's advantages. And I think one of the biggest, my, one of my biggest takeaways... Two, one, this is a president who's ready, ready to take on the other side and ready to launch a, a campaign. And number two, this is a Republican Party that is not ready, that this is a Republican Party that still doesn't know exactly who they are, what their message is. He was speaking to independents. They were speaking to their base. I, I think that was a good night for him. Sarah, is that the way you saw things? Well, in part. So... I did think Joe Biden had a good night, and I thought the best moment by far wasn't a substantive one. One of the most important things about this State of the Union, and by the way, I agree with Mo, stakes are normally low. Most White Houses would love to ditch the State of the Union. The whole process leading up to it is miserable. It takes months. You know, every cabinet official has to weigh in with their list of accomplishments and things they want in the State of the Union. Then you kind of lobby the speechwriters at the White House to get your stuff in. Nobody likes this process. Has anyone asked that question? Like, is it all worth it at some point? Because, no. I mean, we <laughs> talk about prioritizing within the government and how we can help, you know, people suffering around the world. Like, that's a lot of time on a speech that may or may not be that important. But sorry, go ahead. It's a huge amount of time. And by the way, viewership dropped off substantially. Um, about 27 million people watched the speech this week. Um, a huge drop off from his first day of the union, which had been a huge drop off, not just from Trump, but Obama, Bush. Now, that's not 
I don't think because of Joe Biden necessarily, maybe a little bit because he's, you know, boring in a good way. Um, but it's also, you know, people don't watch live TV as much anymore. They can go watch The Last of Us episode again or Yellow Jacket or whatever. Um, so that's all to say, I agree the stakes are low, except in this one respect for Joe Biden. There was a lot to lose in that speech. Um especially on the age and mental acuity issue. And so the best moment for Joe Biden, and I thought it was actually really important, was the back and forth with Republicans on Social Security. He said something that I think was untrue. And so then, you know, the Republicans all start booing and McCarthy's trying to calm them down. And it was sort of actually a, a, you know, real live television moment. At that moment, it was very unclear whether Joe Biden could keep control of the room. And you were sort of holding your breath. And not only did he keep control of the room, he won the moment, right? He gets the room back, uses it in a way to say like, well, great, then we all agree. Why don't we all stand up for seniors? And then he gets this bipartisan moment. It was it was very on brand of the brand Joe Biden wants to have. And it also hugely undermined this idea that he's a puppet and that, you know, he's just reading speeches that are provided for him, doesn't know where he is, you know, the sort of um, the old Reagan SNL skits where he's pretending to be a doddering man when the Girl Scouts are there. And then as soon as they leave, he's like straight down to business and everything's great. Um, I thought that was a really important moment. Now, on the substantive issue, again, and we've seen this before from Joe Biden, he says something super partisan that's not actually factually very true or it's true but misleading. Um, and he gets called out for it. You know, on the Republican side, that turns out to be very interesting because Republicans want to go back to being the party of fiscal conservatism after four years of the Trump administration, where, frankly, it turned out it was really fun to say yes, and it's not that much fun to say no. And it is hard to be a party of fiscal conservatism if you're not willing to talk about the two biggest line items in your budget. This has been a brewing conflict within the party. Obviously, Florida um, Senator Rick Scott raised the possibility of sunsetting legislation so that Congress would actually have to vote again on hard things, take hard votes. Maybe it would build up some muscles for that. Mitch McConnell's, you know, saying absolutely not. That's where that Social Security conversation came in, was that Social Security is a piece of legislation. And therefore, when Rick Scott said that every major piece of legislation would sunset, Presumably, he included Social Security. Uh, but you had Vice President Mike Pence presumably running for president saying he would look at entitlement reform. But you had every Republican in that room, basically, standing up and saying they wouldn't touch Social Security and Medicare, which this is a directionally big deal for the Republican Party. Are we going to have a fiscally conservative party in the United States moving forward? Boy, it kind of didn't look like it this week. Look, we're going to take a quick break and I want to pick up right here in a moment. We'll be back in a second with more Left, Right and Center. Thanks for listening to Left, Right and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we're back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm your host, David Green. Um, 
Sarah, you, you were just describing Senator Rick Scott of Florida and his proposal to, you know, to be a fiscal conservative, to sunset everything, every piece of legislation, the federal government, you know, and see if it's worth having, which would include entitlements, which led to Joe Biden, I would say was not untrue, but maybe misleading. But I think fundamentally, and this is what I want to ask you both before we move on, um, you know, this is not about cutting Social Security entirely, cutting Medicare. Is there a conversation that both parties are willing to have in a room about those programs, their future and ways to save money? I mean, things like raising the retirement age, or is it is it so fraught that that's just never going to happen and we're just going to see moments like we saw in the State of the Union speech? First of all, I just, I got to push back. He What he said was true. What he said was not untrue. The exact line from his speech some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset every five years. The exact line from Rick Scott's proposal. This has been pointed out to him before, and he has changed other things in his proposal, but has not changed this line, is that all federal legislation sunsets in five years. If a law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. Social Security and Medicare were enacted by federal legislation. So therefore, what the president said was absolutely true. Sure, but the implication, Mo, was that he was going to, like, that Social Security and Medicare were going to sunset. That is different than what he's actually talking about, which is by All sunsetting things every five years. Yeah, Mo, hold on. That every five years, Congress has to reevaluate to reauthorize the programs, not that it would end Social Security and Medicare, which is what was implied. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset every five years. What he said was true. What he said was written in Rick Scott's plan. What he said was defended by Rick Scott in the past. I'm sensing from this conversation between the two of you that it would be hard to get people in a room and, and talk about ways <laughs> to address this together. That, that's, that's what I'm picking up here. Yeah, look, where I agree with Sarah was that the president masterfully performed uh, some political jujitsu that locked the Republican majority uh, into not touching Social Security and Medicare in this next budget. And he's going to keep, I mean, you see him out since the State of the Union making that a political issue. This is something that Democrats see is important to them. It is something that they think is a political winner for them. And Republicans, we, we, we can have the conversation about what the right policy prescription is. But Republicans have taken themselves out of that conversation now. Yeah, can that conversation have that conversation for now? Social, Social Security and Medicare will bankrupt us as a country, and nobody wants to talk about it because in the short term, when you're only elected every two years, it's not in your interest to take on something that won't actually bankrupt the country in the next two years. And so I think we've run into a real problem with our entire system of government when neither party wants to talk about entitlement reform, and it is a looming disaster. I do. Th- I do. I agree that it is always going to be a politically improbable conversation to have. Are Democrats fundamentally, if you could take the politics out of it, which you can't, obviously, but do they recognize that these are programs that that might need to be tinkered? Questions like raising retirement age are things that should at least be discussed or or those policy proposals and ideas that Democrats are just like, that. it's not, these programs are great, they serve people well, they have forever, and you shouldn't touch them, they're a third rail. I think a majority of Democrats probably fall into the latter camp. 
there have been some who have tried over the past you know decade or two um, to address some of the issues, retirement age, um, uh, chief among them. Uh, and they'll probably continue to be a group of Democrats that keep trying to focus on that. Uh, but I don't think that's where a majority of the of the Democrats in office are. So I think it is going to be an improbable conversation. And Sarah, you think there are great consequences to that? There are huge consequences to it. I mean, again, going back to what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, every time we have to borrow more money from China, guess what? That has consequences. And in order to float Social Security and Medicare every day, we're borrowing money from China. Okay, I uh, we're going to move on from the State of the Union and entitlements, um, but sure, we'll be talking about them again. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Super Bowl. Um, Kansas City Chiefs, Philadelphia Eagles, this Sunday. Uh, this is Kansas City's third Super Bowl appearance in four years, led, of course, by quarterback Patrick Mahomes, but they are facing an Eagles team that has been a juggernaut this season. And not that anyone cares, but I think this is going to be an Eagles blowout win. Um, and everyone can tell me I was wrong next week. Uh, but... One thing you are likely to hear Sunday from Chiefs fans in the stadium is their famous tomahawk chop. Um, a lot of people, including many Chiefs fans, find this really offensive to Native communities. Uh, Rhonda Lavaldo is a Haskell Indian Nations University professor, an Acoma Pueblo activist, and founder of the Not In Our Honor Coalition, which is calling for the Kansas City Chiefs to change their name and for the chop to end, she says Native Americans were stripped of their culture only to now be watching that culture used by a sports franchise. Religion was outlawed. They could not practice their ceremonies. They couldn't sing their songs. They couldn't even say their language because if they were brought here, their mouths would be washed out with soap. So why is it okay for the fans in Kansas City to play Indian when our people weren't allowed to be Indian? Lavaldo was interviewed by Lawrence Brooks IV, who is the race and culture reporter for public radio station KCUR in Kansas City. His piece about the culture surrounding the Chiefs had the headline as Kansas City Chiefs head to the Super Bowl, their violent traditions alienate even some local fans. And Lawrence is here. Um, enjoyed the piece and, and thanks for coming on. Well, thank you. First off, thank you for having me on the show, and I appreciate you um, taking interest in my piece. Um, around the city, like, it's, this issue is not as big as most would think. Like, the casual fan around here, um, and, well, not even the casual fan. Like, it's hard to find a casual fan here in Kansas City. Like, sports is such a big part of people's identities here. So it's like Mr. Hostetler said in the piece that, you know, they kind of – push it to the side or put their blinders up because they feel it's not as, you know, it's not as racist as other teams' names or other teams, um, you know, logos or whatever in the past. And uh, remind us who, who, who Mr. Hostetler was, just, just just for people who haven't heard your piece. He was the, um, Matt Hostetler, he is the producer and creator of some, the Sometimes It Rains podcast that is, um, it delves into the intersection of sports and politics. Gotcha. So it's not it, it's being discussed, but it's not it's not huge, but it is it's hugely important. Right. And and I guess I I wonder, can you set this conversation in the larger context? Like we've seen Washington, D.C. change the name of their football team. We saw Cleveland, Ohio, change the name of their major league baseball team. But then we see 
like the Florida State Seminoles continue doing the chop um, and, you know, the Seminole tribe themselves, you know, work with and cooperate with Florida State. So I, I guess I just I, I wonder how this falls into the larger conversation about about sports and, and when names and, and actions can really offend people. Well, it's kind of a disconnect here with that, like the um, per the Chiefs website, um, this issue came up with the Chiefs in 2014 and they, um, per my reporting, they reached out to the American Indian Community Working Group, which is a group of eight people. And um, they feel that what the Chiefs have done so far, as in blessing the drum, uh, adding indigenous people um, to uh, game day events and celebrations, uh, getting rid of the mascot war paint, which was the horse. And um, they did agree to stop the chop for a while, which um, to my understanding that they did. But, you know, um, given that the drum and that song is uh, such a integral part of, you know, game day festivities and, and it's, it's back. So, but the um, controversy came with me talking to the Not In Our Honor Coalition in the Kansas, Kansas City Indian Center here, which is the only social service organization for Native people in Kansas City. And Ms. Lavaldo, Rhonda Lavaldo, and Ms. Gaylene Krauser said the organization will not even have like a meeting with them to discuss, you know, their grievances. Um, they've been out there protesting for like 17 years doing this, which is something else I found out within um, uh, the process of doing this reporting. And... Um, you know, they said they appreciate them removing the um, other relics of, you know, quote unquote racism that the Chiefs use. But they want these other um, like the logo on the Tomahawk Chop and the song and the drum. They want it gone. But, you know, there there hasn't there hasn't really been much movement on that. So you're saying that the Chiefs, that the organization wanted wanted the narrative out there that they were working with you know, some members of, of Native communities to to figure out a way forward that didn't involve changing the entire name of the franchise. Um, and those conversations were happening. But what you revealed in your piece is that there are still, you know, some people in the Native community who are very, who are very angry and, and want their voices to be heard here. Yes, that's exactly what I, um, uh, I uncovered in the process of my reporting. I mean, full disclosure, uh, I have Worked for the Chiefs for the last three years as a volunteer for the first two and um, uh, an employee the last uh, this previous season. Um, so I got to witness like the chop myself and, you know, even just being a fan as somebody who I'm a former uh, member of the military. I was in the Navy for 10 years, so I've got to be around a lot of, you know, people and cultures and, and languages and, and and many things all over the world. So even as a fan, it kind of made me uncomfortable. But um uh, I had no idea that it was even a conversation about this until I decided to, um, uh, like, you know, search the story. Are you a big Chiefs fan yourself? Yeah, I'm a big Chiefs fan. I've been a Chiefs fan all my life. I mean, I, I'm born and raised in Kansas City. Like I said, um, uh, I got the opportunity to be a volunteer for the Chiefs and work on a, um, the pyro team uh, for the last uh, two and a half seasons as a part of being a student vet at uh, UMKC, the University of Missouri, Kansas City, where I graduated from and went to school and got that opportunity. And it was like, you know, I got I get to be on the field every week and and everything like that. Um, and it was a really cool experience. But you go out there and it's like you see these things and, it, you know, it kind of makes you as a fan, it kind of makes you question um, uh, if those things are appropriate. And even 
in the midst of this reporting, I found out that the chop and the and the the chan is not even like a part of Chiefs tradition. It was it was a part. Florida State came up with this years ago. You know, I I've gone through. I, I you know, this is a different situation, but I'm I'm a, a lifelong Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and when our you know future Hall of Fame quarterback Ben Roethlisberger was accused of, I mean some horrific things, assaulting a young woman in, in a bathroom. Um, I remember hard conversations with my wife and other friends who were like, how could you ever root for that team, that person ever again? Um, but I also, I love the franchise. I love, I love the team. And so, you know, I continued rooting for the Steelers and being a fan every week. Like, how do you deal with that now that you've seen this up close, you love the Chiefs, but you were really uncomfortable with what, with some of this? You kind of deal with it like any other American. You just don't participate in that that part of the festivities. Um, like I said, I've been a lifelong football fan, and I'll be a Chiefs fan forever. Um, I heard, um, uh, but me personally, like I'm not that attached to like the name and everything else. Like if if they chose to change the names, and so be it. I'll still be a fan, and it'll probably make it a better experience for um, uh, you know, for everybody that want to participate. Because from my reporting. Um, Miss Lavaldo and Miss Krauser both said that they are fans of of local teams, the Royals, the Kansas Jayhawks, um, uh, and other teams here in the region. And they go to games and they support and they want to be fans of the Chiefs. But them being of of you know of native culture and and experiencing that sort of racism um, uh, in their minds, and they just can't support. And um, as a race and culture reporter here, I mean, that's my job. I, I have to broach both sides, of, both sides of those issues. I mean, I was at the AFC Championship game myself that Sunday, and I finished the interviews with uh, Miss Lavaldo and the other participants in, that inter- uh, in this piece that Friday, and I went out and completed the piece the previous week. So it's, it's like, you know, you have to do what you have to do. And, I mean, these this is somebody else's pain that I'm relaying to the world. And, you know, I, I appreciate them giving, you know, trusting me in, and respecting me to do that. Wow. You, you articulated your job um, so beautifully, and, and you did a wonderful job doing it uh, with this piece. Um, Lawrence Brooks IV is the race and culture reporter for KCUR in Kansas City. Um, Lawrence, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I, I hope you uh, enjoy the Super Bowl this weekend. And uh, even though I think the Eagles are going to win, good luck to the Chiefs. The Eagles are a great team, and, you know, I wish them luck. Um, well, we'll, uh, we'll communicate after the game and see, uh, see whose prediction was right. Lawrence, great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Green and everybody else. I appreciate y'all. Okay, time again for our left, right, and center rants and raves. I want to bring Mo and Sarah back. Um, Sarah, all yours. I have a rave today. It might be a little big picture, but... I thought maybe there were some young people out there who were listening to this, and I just thought they should know that today I'm raving about being an adult. You know, junior high sucked, and high school was a little bit better. But college was better than high school, and getting out of college was way better, and having a job, and being in my 20s. And being in my 30s was awesome. Like, turning 30, I thought would be, like, maybe weird, and nope, it was great. Um, And 40s are shaping up to be even better than my 30s, and I'm going to tell you why. Because I'm not going to brunch anymore. There's no more hangovers. And today, when I wanted ice cream for lunch, by God, 
I ate ice cream for lunch. And that is why I'm raving about being an adult. I wouldn't go have ice cream for lunch now. That's lovely. Mo? I'm ranting today. Anyone that has listened to my rants in the past knows that I often like to rant about Twitter. There's lots of reasons to rant about Twitter. However, one reason not to rant about Twitter is this perceived implicit bias against conservatives. Study after study has shown that there is no anti-conservative bias. If anything, Twitter has given conservative news greater visibility than liberal news over the years. But now we've got this congressional hearing looking, examining, diving deep into all the ways Twitter and the deep state have colluded against conservatives. One of the first pieces of information to come out is that then conservative Republican President Donald Trump and his team asked Twitter to take down tweets from Chrissy Teigen because she said mean things about him. And then it came out that Twitter had to keep an entire database of Republican requests to remove tweets that they did not like. The exact same behavior that the Republicans in Congress are now investigating uh, when it comes to Democrats. So let's, uh, let's stop the crocodile tears. Let's put the hypocrisy aside. Let's focus on really how to make this thing better than just playing the victim card. All right, I am going to go back to football um, because I want to I want to rise in defense of diehard Eagles and Chiefs fans um, who are going to Super Bowl parties this weekend. I love that Sunday is going to bring out both fans and non-fans. Some people are coming just for the the party, the beer, the pizza, the Rihanna concert. It's all great, but I know from experience when your team is actually playing, you are struggling to act friendly and social, but really all you want to do is find a little space on the corner, in the corner right in front of the television to watch and celebrate and scream and curse and throw something if you need to. So when you see that happening, just give the diehard fan a moment and a little bit of space, especially if things are close in the fourth quarter. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. Sarah Isger and Mo Alethi, thank you both. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Singer Schiff. Our production assistant is Alexandra Applegate. Our executive producer is Arnie Seipel. The show is recorded and mixed by Phil Richards. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I am David Green. We really appreciate you being here. Enjoy the Super Bowl. Uh, Come back next week for Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 